The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Spectator Out Loud with me, Lyndon Kemcaran. Each week we choose our favourite pieces from the magazine and ask our writers to read them aloud. Coming up on the podcast this week, Melissa Kite mourns the Warwickshire countryside of her childhood, ripped up and torn apart for HS2, and how people like her parents have been treated by the doomed project. Nigel Bigger attempts to explain the thinking behind those who insist on calling Britain a racist country even though the evidence says otherwise. And Matt Ridley enters a fool's paradise, where he warns against being so open-minded that you risk your brain falling out. First, it's Melissa Kite. When I drive to see my parents in the once peaceful farming country where I grew up, it is a strange, bittersweet experience. The car journey takes me through places I ought to recognise, but I don't anymore, because the green fields of Warwickshire, the villages and the farms are now scarred by the tortuous works of HS2. The distinctive red earth is now laid bare for mile upon mile as the bulldozers do their worst. Rows of cottages and entire villages lie deserted, testimony to the billions already spent. As I drive along the main Banbury to Coventry Road, I see mountains of earth piled high as flyovers take shape. I stare at this curiously outdated project, old hat both in terms of the controversy and the purpose it was meant to have. It seems to me that the works advance only about a few inches every time I drive up there. A high-speed line has, for many years now, been yesterday's answer to yesterday's problem. It was outmoded when the Tories backed the idea at the 2008 conference. The speedy trains to Manchester and Leeds would cost just £16 billion, it was said, and be ready by 2027. That money has been spent, but not an inch of track has been laid. The budget is closer to £100 and the deadline is sometime in the 2040s. But it's not just that. Lockdown accelerated home working, so commuter trains from Manchester and Leeds are already arriving in London full of empty seats. It is so old-fashioned and pointless, the idea of paying billions so businessmen and women can get to a meeting a few minutes quicker, that the main puzzle is why Rishi Sunak has not just cut his losses and called the whole thing off, rather than half of it, from Birmingham northwards. His alternative to that, a massive list of road and rail upgrades, was a trade-off that should have been made years ago. London to Birmingham is already fast enough, under 80 minutes every time I have done it, and it has always seemed folly to argue that 50 billion, or indeed 100 billion, would be well spent making that journey time shorter by less than half an hour. A Japanese-style bullet train might have been a good idea 20 years ago, when travel time was dead time, but now that you can easily work on a train, who's going to pay £200 or more for a high-speed train ticket just so that you can get from London to Birmingham 10 minutes quicker? My parents were not close enough to the line to be automatically bought out. Only those within 60 metres of the proposed 225 mile an hour trains were compensated without a fight. The three bedroom semi I grew up in 
one of a dozen in a row surrounded by fields, rather sweetly called Crackley Crescent, was 200 metres from the line. And because it was floodplain, a massive feat of engineering was planned to get the railway across their road. The farm opposite was carved in two, and Crackley Crescent became Area 18 in the HS2 plans. A leading law firm took on my parents' case, and I found myself sitting in front of a House of Commons Select Committee, giving evidence about their plight as we fought to persuade HS2 Limited that they needed to be compensated, that they could not be expected to live the latter part of their lives cut off from the nearby towns and services by endless roadworks, watching the surroundings they love being bulldozed around them. My parents were treated abominably. At one point, the union leader, Bob Crow, suggested that people like them should stop worrying about their lawns, as though anyone whose home was lost was just a rich NIMBY. I'd like to see George Osborne or Lord Adonis, who championed HS2 for Labour, wake up to find their home next to a high-speed rail overpass and be happy about it. The HS2 lawyers tied us up in mind-bending bureaucracy and waited until the very last moment when my parents were packed up and ready to move to a new home further away from the line to suddenly drop their offer. They had the cheat to tell me that this was in order to get the best deal for the British taxpayer. I sent an email back pointing out that my parents are the British taxpayer. The wooded landscape at the back of the house where I grew up was once teeming with wildlife. Trees were cut down during breeding season. Ancient woodland was desecrated. There is hardly anything recognisable left of that natural landscape now. Hundreds of acres of beauty are gone, and for what? If a vital new economic artery had been created, then fair enough. But this is all about shaving 10 or 20 minutes off a train journey for a fantasy group of business people who, it is imagined, are suddenly going to come off Zoom and go to meet each other in an office. As they began the felling, some idiots from the local council erected a modern sculpture of a tree made of wood, complete with a plaque about biodiversity. You could not make this stuff up. Joni Mitchell sang many years ago about a time when they would cut down all the trees and put them in a tree museum. Now, courtesy of HS2, that really is happening. What a terrible waste of years of struggle, not just for my family, but for all the people whose lives have been blighted. What an almighty con against the taxpayers whose money could and should have been spent on repairing roads, school buildings, or building an east-west railway that the people in the north of England might actually use. And what a waste of all that beautiful countryside that's gone forever. What a kick in the teeth for those communities where life will never be the same again. That was Melissa Kite. Next is Nigel Bigger. Kimmy Bignoch is right to say that Britain is not a racist country. The data simply doesn't support the claim that black and ethnic minority BME people in the UK are generally disadvantaged because of the racial prejudice of white Britons that systemic racism is the cause of the problem. It also suggests that some ethnic minorities tend to perform better than others because of internal cultural factors, not least strong families and high educational aspirations. By the same token, the cause of relative disadvantage often lies in culture, not racism. In Beyond Grievance, what the left gets wrong about ethnic minorities, Rakib Esan writes, Family dynamics and internal cultural attitudes can have a very real impact on the life trajectory of people living in Britain's competitive society. So why, in defiance of the empirical data, has the Labour Party given itself over to the brainless importation of radical identity politics from the US? This holds 
as a matter of political dogma that we may speak our BME people as if they are a single homogeneous body united in their common disadvantage, which is simply attributable to a systemic racism rooted in every white person's privilege. Why cling to this narrative when the evidence says you shouldn't? People who really cared to correct unjust economic and social disadvantages would be eager to understand the causes correctly since accurate diagnosis is requisite for effective remedy. So when presented with data that their wanted diagnosis, say systemic racism, simply doesn't stand up empirically, they would react with keen curiosity, even if with skepticism. That's because what matters above all else to them is solving the real problem. Yet that is not how the new progressives react. Over the past six years, I have presented evidence that Britain's alleged systemic racism cannot be made to derive from a colonial history epitomized by slavery and the dehumanizing racism that justified it not least since the British Empire devoted the second half of its life to anti-slavery on the basis of fundamental human equality. I've been met not with sceptical curiosity or thoughtful criticism, but with spitting abuse and the fist of repression. My antagonists never get as far as disagreeing since they are determined not to listen in the first place. But if they really were concerned about the world's victims, they would open their ears, perchance to learn, improve, and become more effective. So what do they really care about? One answer, according to Asan, is money. And I quote, the financial health of bad faith actors ultimately rests on the peddling of fundamentally warped interpretations of British society and its institutions. And then, of course, there are jobs and influence at stake, or manner of anti-racist political careers having been built upon carefully fashioned personas which attract social status and power. But there's more to it than that. It is notable that members of this ideological group are determined to think the very worst of their own country. It is important to them that Britain is and remains, as Isan puts it, a hellish island of rampant racism. They don't need to believe this. Indeed, the hard evidence says they shouldn't, but they plough ahead regardless. Why? What's going on here psychologically, even spiritually? One plausible candidate is the operation of a degenerate Christian sensibility. For Christians, the paradoxical mark of the genuinely righteous person is a profound awareness of their own unrighteousness. The saint is distinguished as the one who knows more deeply than others just what a sinner he really is. There is considerable virtue in this, of course, since it tempers self-righteousness with compassion for fellow sinners, forbidding the righteous to cast the unrighteous beyond the human pale. Yet, like all virtue, it is vulnerable to vice, for it can degenerate from genuine humility into a perverse bid for supreme self-righteousness, which exaggerates one's sins and broadcasts the display of repentance. Holier than thou, because more sinful than thou. The Jesuit-educated French philosopher Pascal Bruckner captured this when writing of contemporary post-imperial Europe in his book The Tyranny of Guilt, and I quote, This is the paternalism of the guilty conscience, Seeing ourselves as the kings of infamy is still a way of staying on the crest of history. Since Freud, we know that masochism is only a reverse sadism, a passion for domination turned against oneself. Europe is still messianic in a minor key. Barbarity is Europe's great pride, which it acknowledges only in itself. It denies that others are barbarous, finding attenuating circumstances for them, which is a way of denying them all responsibility. There is a self-obsessive quality about this. While the rhetoric claims the mantle of the oppressed, the action ignores them. And I quote again, 
By erecting lack of love for oneself into a leading principle, we lie to ourselves about ourselves and close ourselves to others. In Western self-hatred, the other has no place. It is a narcissistic relationship in which the African, the Indian and Arab are brought in as extras. And so it was in the December 2015 Rhodes Must Fall agitation in Oxford. The protests involved several hundred students, mostly overseas postgraduates, privileged with scholarships to study at one of the world's most famous prestigious universities, who were clamouring for the downfall of an obscure statue of a British imperialist who'd been lying in his grave for well over a century. Some were even Rhodes scholars, cheerfully biting the hand that was feeding them. Meanwhile, back in the home of Rhodes Must Fall student leader Nkotoza Kwabe, Jacob Zuma and the ANC were busy looting the state, driving South Africa to the verge of collapse and exposing its people to destitution. About that real-time political scandal and looming human crisis, what did Oxford student social justice warriors have to say? Nothing at all. That was Nigel Bigger. And finally, here's Matt Ridley. Is the Loch Ness Monster real? Many thousands of people think so. Existence plausible after plesiosaur discovery, the BBC reported. Hundreds join huge search for Loch Ness Monster. Not only that, the Beeb had live coverage of congressional hearings about possible UFO sightings in July. It ran a series on the Yeti the previous month, asking... Is something out there in the Himalayas? Last year, an Autumn Watch presenter took seriously the possibility that large cats are roaming the countryside. Have we been time-ported back to the 1970s? I know clickbait journalism these days requires you to set your gullibility rating to max, but these old, tired clichés of pseudoscience are scraping the barrel. What's coming back next? Poltergeists, Ouija boards, extrasensory perception, reincarnation, the Bermuda Triangle, crop circles. Each generation has to learn that the world is very, very thinly populated with ghosts, aliens and undiscovered megafauna, but very thickly populated with charlatans. There's nothing to support any of these mythical beasts except a few grainy and dodgy photographs. Literally the only picture of a putative plesiosaur in Loch Ness was taken in 1934. It shows something that could be anything from six inches to six feet long, but was anyway exposed as a hoax decades ago. What happened to common sense? Or simple probability for that matter? The notion that a massive reptile could escape unfilmed in a Scottish lake or a massive ape on Himalayan glaciers, or flying saucers in the sky, is for the birds, and always has been. These fantasies grew steadily less plausible with the sale of every iPhone. But the case for most of these creatures existing was always ecologically nonsensical anyway. If a 30-foot plesiosaur lives in Loch Ness, what exactly is it feeding on? This is an oligotrophic stretch of water, meaning its acidic waters lack the nutrients to support more than a very meagre food chain. Trout in the lake rarely get bigger than a pound. Salmon come in from the ocean, but only for a few months of the year. The plesiosaur would eat all the fish in the loch in a few weeks. Well, maybe it's a herbivore. Nope, 
there's barely any weed in such a deep, low-nutrient loch, even in summer. And what there is shows no sign of being grazed surreptitiously by a massive herbivore. But one plesiosaur would not be enough. You'd need a minimum viable population. Anything less than a 100 or so would be far too inbred to survive. And how did they get through the last ice age when the loch was frozen solid? None of this deterred the BBC from writing that ridiculous headline on its children's CBBC page in June, Existence Plausible After Plesiosaur Discovery. The discovery in question was that some plesiosaurs once lived in very different and ecologically rich freshwater environments, but uh, around 100 million years ago in what is now the Sahara. The only argument left for taking Nessie seriously is that she has gained the sacred status of Father Christmas and it's a shame to poop the party. The same arguments apply to the Yeti. If it lives on Himalayan glaciers, it won't find any food. If on alpine meadows, it would have to eat yaks, which might get it noticed by yak herders. If in the forests below that... How come we've identified pretty well every butterfly, shrew and plant in the region but have missed an eight-foot ape? Yet the BBC this year finds seven reasons why the Yeti might actually exist. Interstellar aliens may one day show up on Earth. It's highly likely they exist somewhere in the universe. But the idea that alien spacecraft can flit through our atmosphere for decades without one decent photograph being taken, was silly enough when box brownies were few and far between, but today when everybody has a camera on their mobile and the skies are full of pilots, it grows ever more bonkers. After all, a tiny, nondescript, greenish bird called a Tennessee warbler cannot turn up on the Hebridean island of Barra, as it did last month, without being spotted, yet somehow we're all missing flocks of flying saucers. NASA recently announced an independent report into a catalogue of unexplained sightings, such as of objects making sharp turns at high speed, or plunging into and out of the ocean, as glimpsed by fighter pilots and others. It followed up by appointing a director of unidentified anomalous phenomena research which led a lot of people to celebrate that an official endorsement of UFOs had at last arrived. In fact, it shows that NASA loves anything that gets it in the news and grows its budget. The vast majority of UFO sightings can be explained by balloons, aircraft, drones or smudges on windscreens. The early ones in the 1950s probably included high-altitude, high-speed Blackbird spy planes – which were a closely guarded secret at the time. Perhaps some secret military drones today are capable of seemingly impossible feats. But the fact that 5% or so of sightings cannot be explained does not constitute evidence of visiting aliens. It constitutes evidence of things that are too blurred to explain. Evidence for aliens would be high-quality footage of aliens. The Mexican Congress plumbed new depths of gullibility this year when it displayed a couple of supposedly alien corpses that were long ago debunked as fakes. The Telegraph's Sarah Napton, showing commendable common sense, 
pointed out that the bodies were made of a hodgepodge of human and animal bones, one having a femur where its humerus should be. For once, the Beeb seems to have resisted the temptation of going gullible. As for the strangely persistent notion that wild leopards or black panthers roam the countryside, it's funny how every photograph shows an ordinary pussycat in the distance, once you work out the scale of the objects around it. The Telegraph breathlessly reported this summer that a TV presenter, a warning in itself, had filmed a big cat. The video, short, blurred and through a hedge, was of a cat. Yet BBC Autumn Watch presenter Iolo Williams told a newspaper that just because I've never actually clapped eyes on one living in the wild doesn't mean to say they are definitely not around. I devoured this stuff when I was about ten years old, feasting on every Sasquatch sighting and monster mystery. But then I grew up. Now it's adults on the BBC who are pushing such pseudoscience for clicks. I'm unsure what has caused this outbreak of gullibility in the mainstream media. Plummeting budgets, plunging viewing figures, click-chasing and a dose of nostalgia may all be part of it, but surreptitious messages from an advanced civilization on planet Zog cannot be ruled out. The BBC has an enormous team devoted to debunking things, called Verify, but it appears to have been conspicuously absent from checking its own stories. Every time I worry that we are sinking into a new age of gullibility, I remember my own experience with the phenomenon of crop circles. When these started appearing in British wheat fields in the early 1990s, I was staggered to find that even quite sane people were convinced they were made by aliens, when it was blindingly obvious that they were made by people. So I went out and made some to prove it was easy. A TV producer commissioned some students to make one and then got a silly expert to say on camera that it could not possibly be man-made. The two men who started the craze, Doug Bauer and Dave Chorley, owned up to making them as a prank after an evening at the pub. Yet still the gullible media, including even Science Museum, insisted on calling them unexplained. I looked up the BBC's recent pronouncements on the topic and was unsurprised that as recently as two years ago, the corporation was spouting debunked nonsense again. Doug and Dave were dismissed to make way for a lot of hand-waving about ley lines, spiritual energy and extraterrestrial intelligence attempting to warn humanity about climate change. And as for being man-made, quotes, among those who discount the alien hypothesis... A common theory is that human circle makers tap into some kind of collective consciousness. Unquote. There is a case for remaining open minded about everything, but as someone once said, not so open minded your brains fall out. And that was Matt Ridley bringing us to the end of this week's edition of Spectator Out Loud. If these articles have left you wanting more, then why not pick up a copy of the magazine? I'm Lyndon Kencarran. Thanks so much for listening and please do join us again next week. Bye.